We are New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. A community church in the city of Chicago, all over the city, for the good of the city. Right now, we are in the midst of our series, What Happens? A look at what happens when we put God and His plans first in our finances. Wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message. How many of you have heard the name John Piper? Okay, that's pretty good, like 50%. Do you know the one thing, though, that John Piper is probably most famous for? Supposedly spending time in heaven. Oh, spending time in heaven? That might be Don Piper. Uh, maybe. Is that the 90 minutes in heaven? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, th- I think that's a different John Piper, or maybe Don. Sorry. So, the one thing that this guy is most famous for, I think, was preaching a sermon in 2000 in Memphis, Tennessee, at a one day event called the Passion Conference. Have you heard of the Passion Conference? Wow, even less people. Okay. Well, I went to Passion when I was 18, 19. Carol went. We didn't know each other at the time. And uh, Passion, it was held in Atlanta. It was in the Superdome. It was like so many people. But in the late 90s, this conference was started. And in 2000, John Piper preached a message of Passion in Memphis, Tennessee, outside when it was raining. And there were 40,000 college students sitting on the grass listening to this man speak in a microphone. And he challenged the students to live for Christ and to not waste their lives. If you've heard that phrase from John Piper that comes from this sermon that he preached in 2000. And um, the main thing, though, that he's remembered for, for this sermon, was an illustration, a story that he told during this sermon about collecting seashells. So here's the story that he told. Let me read it to you says this is a story that he found in a magazine and he used it to illustrate what he calls a tragedy. So he says Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30 foot boat, play softball and collect shells. And he, that's the story he reads out of the magazine. And then he says, that's a tragedy. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did. And he says, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And his story went viral. And actually, if you Google John Piper's seashell sermon, then here's some top hits. One, how John Piper's seashell swept over a generation. Next one, reflections on the seashell sermon 18 years later. The next one, seven minutes that moved a generation. And then a funny one from the Babylon Bee was this picture. John Piper caught, photographed, collecting seashells. (laughs) Which, funny enough, as a reflective, kind of outdoorsy, poetic guy... He probably does that. But he was using this sermon to illustrate something that he wanted to get across about what it means to live a fruitful and good life. And maybe you don't like that or you know, maybe it sounds over the top. I mean, my parents are about to retire, hopefully. 
and I hope that they have plenty of trips to Florida to collect shells. So they've worked really hard and they're really exhausted. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to focus here on why this struck a chord with a generation, as these people are saying, if you Google this sermon. Why did this stand out? Why did this move 40,000 college students, many who went on to become missionaries or pastors or even Christians? I mean, Corey was probably just out of college by a few years at that point. He probably remembers when all this was going on and kind of this resurgence of the faith among young people that was being sparked by passion conferences. Why was this story, though, so catchy? And I think it's because it was so shocking. No one talks in church about retirement or what you do with money when you stop working or your kids are out of the house, what you do with your future, saving up and storing up for your future. And every November, we set aside three weeks to reflect on what the Bible says about money. And I think it's fitting, actually, that Darnell read Psalm 90 this morning, thinking about, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And why do we do this? Why do we set aside three weeks to reflect on what the Bible has to say about money? I think it's because Jesus talked a lot about it. That's one reason. So 16 of his 38 parables involve some teaching about money. Over 280 verses in the four Gospels mention money. That's a lot. That's one out of every 10 verses. So this is a big deal. In a really helpful book, actually, that I read a couple years ago on anxiety and discipleship, over a third of the book deals with money. As if money is one of the main causes of stress and worry, our fears over money, they can be very present. Or even if we're not worried about our current circumstances, we can start panicking about the future. Like what happens if my house doesn't sell for what I bought it for, or the stock market crashes, or if I lose my job, even when there's no hint that any of that's going to happen, we can freak out about our money. We even start to love our paper more than our neighbor. So this is a big deal. Money attaches to our hearts. So we need to hear the Bible on money. So this sermon series, what happens? What happens when we think about money? Today's question is, what happens when we think about our money? And like John Piper's challenge, specifically our future. What happens when we think about our money and specifically our future? But before you get either really excited because you're close to retirement or fall asleep because you're in your 20s and you don't think about retirement, um, let me say this, that the Bible is far more interested with our eternal retirement. What Jesus and the apostles call our eternal inheritance. It's far more interested than, in that than our earthly retirement. Jesus actually does have a lot to say about our 401k, but it's a 401k that you can't cash out when you're 65. It's one that you invest in and cash out in eternity. So just think of this retirement like a metaphor, kind of like inheritance. How you think about your money now, what you're storing away now, what you're investing in now, as it has to do with your eternal inheritance. So let me show you what I'm talking about. So if you have a Bible, Luke 16, 
We'll have it on the screen, but um, be awesome if you had a Bible as well, just to double check and read along. So I'm just going to read kind of a long section here. It's Luke 16, verses 1 to 8. So let's read this together. It says, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? As in taking his job away. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And that one said a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, all right, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And the master praised the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And that's the parable. Now, this story is a little bit strange. It's probably one of the most confusing parables that I know of in the Bible. I actually saw it on the um, optional text. You know, New Life, we do these sermon series together as multiple churches. And I think I need to get rid of this. And Luke 16 was an option. So I read Luke 16. And I was like, what on earth? Like, I don't even remember this parable in the Bible. I honestly didn't. I don't remember ever reading this. I don't know what this means. Seems like every character is corrupt. Every character, and then the one that's corrupt, that's being dishonest, he gets praised by the master, and then Jesus ends the story. So it's very confusing, um, and we can be tempted to just skip these difficult parts of scripture. I was, but I was thinking, no, let me dig into this a little bit. Let me think about this because, like Gala mentioned a couple weeks ago, we don't want to be like Thomas Jefferson, who cut out who literally cut out parts of his Bible and pasted them into another book so that he could have his own 80-page Bible instead of a 1,000-page Bible, and he just cut out all the parts that he didn't like. <laughs> so we don't want to be like that. We believe here that every word of God is the word of God, that it's true and trustworthy, even when it's confusing. But sometimes there are parts that are very confusing. So let me sort of retell this story so far. Let me sort of paraphrase. So there's this rich man that has a manager who works for him. And this rich man hired this guy to take care of things, maybe be a financial steward, uh, to take care of his resources. And this manager is wasting money. Now, I used to work at Chick-fil-A as a manager, and I had a job to do as a manager. I needed to keep the cars moving through the drive-through, needed to keep the food coming to the cars, I needed to keep all the employees positioned for success, to work hard and serve guests. But if I decided to sit in the dining room and eat waffle fries, my AirPods in, at 12.30 p.m. on a Saturday, that would be bad management, like big time 
bad management. I'd be wasting my boss's money and I'd get fired. So this manager is wasting money and he's getting fired. We don't know what he was doing to waste the money, but we know that he's about to get fired because his boss tells him so. And he starts going through his options. So he's thinking, how am I going to live? How am I going to make money? How am I going to survive? And he says, I'm too old and weak for manual labor. So maybe he was getting close to something like retirement. And he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. I really don't have many options. So he's worried, literally, about becoming homeless and starving to death. He doesn't have a safety buffer, no social security, no 401k. If he loses his job, he might lose his life. So he makes a plan. He goes to these people that owe his boss money and he says, hey, how much do you owe? And the guy says, 100 barrels of oil. And he says, all right, here's the official papers. Let's make that 100 look like 50. Ooh, okay. You're the guy that's in charge, I'm in. And then he goes to another one, he says, how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred bins of wheat. He says, all right, here's the official papers. What if we make that hundred look like an 80 for you? He says, amazing, like, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, so now these clients to his boss are not just in debt to his boss, but they're in debt to him. They're in debt to him and he forgives this massive portion of their debt so that when he's homeless, they'll give him a place to stay and food to eat. And these really are massive debts. So the first debt, 100 measures of oil, I was looking this stuff up, they think it's like 875 gallons of oil. And the second measure, 100 measures of wheat, was about 100 bushels of wheat. So both debts were reduced, taken down, by about the same amount, which was 500 denarii. Now, what on earth does all that mean? For us, it would be like being in debt over $100,000. But the only way that you could pay it off was by working it off. And when you worked, you also had to eat and survive and live yourself. So there were some estimates saying that it could take these people that were in this debt up to eight years to work off this debt while just surviving themselves. So basically, these people are slaves to this rich owner and this manager is offering them freedom. So after he gets fired, how could they let him go homeless? He basically just freed them from slavery. And verse eight, this is a really confusing one, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So the manager, the master praises the manager for his craftiness. That word shrewd means wise or thoughtful or crafty. It means he's street smart. And if the manager had forgiven that much debt, then he's not only making himself look good, but he's making his boss look good. So I think that's something else that's helpful. It's like, why didn't this guy get caught? Why didn't this owner just go to these debtors and collect what was rightfully his? I think it's because this manager came in his owner's name and forgave the debts. If the owner went and tried to reenact the debts, he would lose his honor. So it's like honor, shame, society. So this is actually, he's a pretty smart guy. Like he's putting these debtors in a bind. He's putting his boss in a bind. And he's doing it all to store up for himself, protect himself and his future. 
So let's come back here to Chicago. So let's say I get fired from Chick-fil-A after my boss walks in and sees me eating waffle fries and podcasting. And on my way out the door, I grab like 50 free sandwich cards. Like we have these little cards. If you ever, you know, have your order messed up or something, just complain, make a big deal, and I'll give you a free sandwich card. Um, don't do it on purpose. That is annoying. Um, but I take 50 of these cards, and I walk out and go across the street to Wendy's. I ask for a job application, fill it out, turn in the application, and you know, 50 free sandwich cards from Chick-fil-A for you. And I say, they're a gift. My friend, he's the boss over there, and uh, he just wanted me to give these to you. He thinks I'm a hard worker. You know, so it's, it's really dishonest, but that's gonna work. I don't know why Wendy's would turn that down. <laughs> so just up that like times 100, because this guy's actually on the verge of life or death. You know, I could go probably apply for a million restaurant jobs or rely on family or something like that, friends in the church. Seems like this guy's literally thinking he's going to become homeless, so just up that a lot. And that's where Jesus ends the story. So like I said, strange parable, so many questions. Why does the boss praise him? Why doesn't he get caught? And thankfully, Jesus makes a few comments about this story and how it relates to our money as his disciples. So in the second half of verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd or crafty in dealing with their own generation than sons of light. And then he says in verse 9, And I tell you, so here's the lesson, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they, those friends, may receive you into eternal dwellings. So here's the key. I think this is a lesser to greater argument. So basically, if the people of the world are so crafty and shrewd and taking care of their future on earth, how much more Shrewd and wise should we be in taking care of our eternal future. The sons of this world are in contrast to the sons of light. And then in verse 8, he says, use money. That phrase, unrighteous wealth, I don't think he means like, go get wealth in an unrighteous way. I think he just means money, like money of this world. It's only good for this world. It's been tainted even by corruption sometimes. So use money to make friends for eternity. This guy, he was dishonest. He was not good. We're not supposed to imitate what he did, but he was smart because he stored up for his future on earth. If he did that, how much more should we be storing up for our future in heaven by making friends with how we use our money? The story is literally just about the temporary so that Jesus can make a point about eternity. He's just using a normal, everyday story so that he can say, look at this guy. Look at what he did. Just to store up for 65 to 85. What about you? What friends are you making? What are you storing up? How are you using your money that's going to affect eternity? Look at Luke 12, uh, verse 33. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, 
with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. If we can be so wise and crafty and prepared and hustling hard and saving up money so that we can be comfortable and secure in this life, how much more should we care about eternal security, eternal riches and treasures that do not fail? It's about the temporary, but he's making a much bigger point about eternity. So just three teaching points. The first one, use money, but make friends. Use money, but make friends. Now I want to stay on this command for just one second. Make friends. This is literally, I mean, this is amazing. This is literally the only imperative, the only command in this whole story. Make friends. <laughs> he doesn't say what he says in other places, like worship God, love your neighbor, believe in me, store up treasure in heaven. You know, some of these more explicit, like, okay, we get what he's saying kind of commands, but he literally just says, make friends. And again, the crafty manager, he made friends so that when he lost his money, they would receive him into their houses. It was a sneaky retirement plan. But Jesus says, use money to make friends for eternity. And again, I mean, you got to balance these things, right? So Jesus cares. I should say this. Jesus cares about your well-being, your provision, your daily bread. He literally tells us to pray. Our Father, give us today our daily bread. God is a Father who delights in providing for us including our provision in retirement. That's true. But in this text, he's interested in getting us to change our minds about something, to shift our perspective, to make friends for eternity, to store up treasure in heaven. But what does this mean? Like, who are these friends that we should make? Because um, maybe you're like really introverted and you're kind of freaking out. Like, I'm going to say, all right, we're all going to Starbucks after service and we're going to talk to five strangers each. No, that's not, I don't think that's what he's talking about. So what does he mean by make friends? Well, they must be people in heaven, for one, because he says that they will receive you into eternity. So I started thinking, okay, maybe he's talking about God. Like God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, you are my friends. He says that to his disciples. All right, maybe that's part of it. At the end of chapter 16, there's this other parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus dies and is carried away to paradise where he's with Abraham. So I'm thinking like, okay, there's all this context here. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's the saints in general. Maybe it's the church like Abraham and, and all the generations of believers. And the way that we use our money and invest in his kingdom. His ministry actually like somehow draws us closer to him, draws us closer to God and to the community of saints. But look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then 16, 14. This is right after our parable. It says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money 
heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So, after that first verse in chapter 15, when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees' opinion about sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, outcasts, he tells these three stories, and then as soon as they're done, he launches into this story about the manager. This story that involves this command to make friends. You see, the Pharisees had no place at the table for sinners, tax collectors, and the poor. Like I said, chapter 16 has two parables in it. The second one, the rich man and Lazarus, that one is a picture of this great reversal that's coming on the day of judgment. When the rich man who had everything he could have wanted in this life, comfort, pleasure, no worries, security, he ends up tormented in Hades. While Lazarus, the poor man that the rich man never took time of day for, Lazarus had nothing but Jesus. And he ends up in paradise. Welcoming the lovers of Jesus. Welcoming the poor. Welcoming the outcasts. So I, just, I see all these context things and I'm like, okay, make friends? Maybe they knew what he was getting at. Maybe they knew that what he meant was that we should not just use our money now to make connections in this life for our status, our reputation, our well-being like the Pharisees, but to make connections by investing in relationships that will last into eternity no matter what it looks like here. No matter what it gives us here. No matter what kind of status or reputation it has to offer. That's what Luke is so interested in. In this whole gospel, we've been talking about it in our small group like every week. So some of this is probably um, like hearing things for the thousandth time from me. But Luke is just amazing. Like it's this gospel literally about how Jesus comes to unexpected people in unexpected places. And Jesus is saying, make friends like me, not like the Pharisees. Again, Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. So that short little command, make friends, actually has so much meaning behind it. It means don't worry too much about making all the right connections and investments in this life. If you make them, great. That's awesome. Like, I hope that we get some... Uh, some investment return <laughs> you know and the little things that we've done but saying don't worry too much about that don't obsess over that don't make that priority make friends with God and Lazarus and Abraham and the poor and the sinners and the IRS and the outcasts and the lost and the hellbound so that you will be investing in things that matter for the kingdom beyond the grave 20,000 years from now. That's the message here. So when you think about your money, don't think first about yourself. But think about how you can use your money to make friends, to invest in relationships for the kingdom. Use money and use it wisely, but make 
friends. And the second thing, and these last two are pretty short, but the second one, be faithful with a little and receive much. So look at verses 10 to 12. He goes on to say, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So these verses, I, think, I mean, they're just flowing off of this stuff. And I think that they help us see even more when I was talking about that lesser to greater kind of mode of teaching that Jesus is in. So in these verses, we see four contrasts, two positive, two negative. The two positive, if you're faithful in a little, you get much. And the second one, if you're dishonest in a little, you're going to be dishonest in much. And then the two negative, by that I just mean they add not. So if you're not faithful in your earthly possessions, then who is going to give you eternal possessions? And if you're not faithful with another's, who's going to give you your own? So this one is also teaching us. Keep our priorities straight. We can't just keep our eyes on our earthly future. If only I had this car, or if only I had that house, if only I had that job that could provide me that house and that car, or maybe I've got that, but I don't enjoy my job. If only I had a job that I enjoyed and also had money, or you know what, maybe if I could just get in all those pyramid schemes and not work, but make a lot of money, that would be awesome. Uh, but he's saying, don't keep your eyes so focused on what's coming. You've been given something in the present time to steward as a disciple of Jesus. And faithfulness is all that he's after. That's all that he's after. He's saying that it matters what you have in the present. Not so much because of what you can get with it, but because of how you can show faithfulness to Jesus with it. It's part of our discipleship. And that present stewardship matters not just for our earthly well-being or retirement, but for eternity. Because there is a, a future judgment coming. Luke assumes it. And for followers of Christ, that judgment will lead to retirement, an inheritance in heaven, in the presence of God. It's what we are in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In every generation. That's pretty broad, broad stroke. Like every generation. You can even apply it down to your own life. Lord, you have been at our dwelling place every season. Every year. I mean, goodness. Our living in a studio apartment where we were for a year and a half with two cats. It was easy to complain sometimes. <laughs> Thankfully, we were on the fifth floor and had a view, so we got some sunlight. So easy to think, man, like, this is not enough. I don't have enough room. I don't have enough space. I mean, I had, like, Zoom calls sometimes where I needed to be in a private place, so I would go in the bathroom and close the door and sit on the floor. Literally. <laughs> I started teaching English online at one point. It's kind of a weird morning job for a couple hours a day. Uh, and I was teaching 
in the bathroom on the floor with like the backdrop was just the white wall behind me and those students they didn't know where i was but they didn't have anywhere else to go but man how amazing if i can look back and say lord you were our dwelling place in that season and not only that but you taught us what matters because we couldn't have a lot of stuff we could literally only had what fit which was not a lot but you are enough lord you are enough so he's saying be faithful in the present don't worry so much about the future but know in hope that there is an inheritance coming that is greater and bigger than your wildest dreams that god our father is preparing for us a home with him that will never end resurrection existence with jesus our physical bodies but without pain without death without sin he will give be faithful in the present with what he's given you it's not even your own it belongs to him and we are stewards so our money shows where our heart is which is why jesus can say be faithful with a little and you will receive much but the last thing is the heart use money but love and serve god look at verse uh, 13 16 13 says no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money so here jesus gets to the heart of the matter you know money and wealth is not all bad it's definitely not what i want you to walk away thinking let me read you this verse too first timothy 6 17 to 19 it says this is paul and he says for the rich in this present age command them not to be prideful nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on god who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves for the future taking hold of that which is truly life i mean he's literally saying like god gives wealth god gives riches for us to enjoy but also and primarily for us to use to bless others so that's why i say use money because we can and should use our wealth for the glory of god and his kingdom but i think the reason jesus so often talks about money and poverty even and especially in luke is because it's so easy for our hearts to attach to money it's so easy for us to start to love money more than god or for us to start to serve money more than god and all of this to the detriment of others we see it in the pharisees and all too often in ourselves so the heart of the matter really is the heart what do you love what do you serve what excites you about your paycheck and for most of us in the neighborhood i mean in chicago in general it's not much because it's literally just paying the bills and then there's nothing left over but how do you dream about money 
What are you wanting? What do you think is going to make you happy or fill that void? It's really about the heart and asking these questions. That's, that's what this text is about. If he can be so wise to store up money for 65 to 85, how much more wise should children of God be to store up treasures in heaven by making friends and connections and relationships, even with our money, investing in the kingdom? So what are we supposed to do with all that? Um, you know, I think, for one thing, literally just examining our hearts. Where are they? And I need this message. I mean, I never really cared or thought about money until I was t about 25. So I made it through high school and my parents had enough to support us. And I made it through college with a part-time job and enough family support to not really worry yet. And then I made it through graduate school even here in Chicago, and um, which is focused on school. Didn't think about money a lot. We had just enough to make it. We're going down a little bit every month, but I didn't really think about it. And then when I graduated in 2019, I started thinking for the first time about full-time work, about provision, about what's, you know, just started thinking about money and needs and, and the future, like 10 years down the road, like I had never thought about before. And I started worrying, started thinking about money a lot, actually. Money became this thing that made me happy or made me sad or made me feel shame or made me feel guilt. Money was in my mind all the time. And maybe some of that is good. I mean, again, Paul, 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> wow. Like, I need to be thinking about provision. I need to be thinking about making money. Like, I don't want to be that. But again, balance. <laughs> thinking about gospel, biblical balance. How can I care to provide for my family without being obsessed? Because here's the reality. What was in my head most of the time wasn't whether or not Carol was going to eat food the next day or me or whether or not we were going to be able to pay our rent you know a few months down the road most of the time with my thoughts on money with my worries on money it was comparing myself to other people friends that maybe graduated their undergraduate when i did and then went into the workforce and i'm looking at them and i'm like in the studio apartment applying for jobs in the bathroom you know out of school no work yet for months and months and hmm, let me look at social media here oh yeah he graduated with me in 2016. wow look at his house look at his car look at his job like what's wrong with me why am i not there yet what am i supposed to be there I, I mean that's literally the stuff that goes through your head is comparisons especially with social media oh my gosh that's the kind of stuff that I was latching on to. That's the kind of stuff where you see where your heart is at. When you're having that moment of fear or panic and you can slow down enough to say, why? And you see those things coming out. How much time you're spending on Facebook or Instagram or how much time you're talking to your friends trying to figure out what they're doing. Or maybe when you get that slight excitement when you see one of them fail. What a miserable 
place to be in. So I don't think that today I can finish the sermon and tell you exactly how to spend your money. Um, but what I want to tell you based on this text is to examine your heart, examine your priorities, and examine your budget. Because a lot of times your budget reveals your heart and your priorities. Um, so actually the band can come up and just we'll start responding in a second with prayer. But think about those questions. Where's your heart? Is it with Christ? Is it with following Jesus? Is it with stewarding his money? Or is it with storing up more and more and more for your comfort here? Are you more shrewd and crafty with your investments on earth? More than with your thoughts of eternity. And you know, here, maybe there are some options. Maybe it will mean reworking your budget so that you can give more freely and generously to the church, which is doing kingdom ministry amongst the lost and the poor in Chicago. Full disclaimer, that's one thing I'm going to do based after this series. Or maybe it's giving to the poor or gospel missions through some trustworthy organization that you know about and have felt compelled to give to for a while, but just haven't been able to let go. Maybe it's a lot more simple than that. Like those are the kind of big things we usually think about. Maybe it's literally buying your children resources to help them grow in Christ instead of buying another pair of new shoes. Never know what the Lord might put on your heart, but when you start thinking about your priorities, Every purchase matters. Not in a way to where you should feel the weight or the guilt or the shame of like, oh man, I spent that dollar poorly, but literally just thinking, how can I be a disciple of Jesus Christ with these purchases? Slowing down to reflect. Maybe it will mean writing a budget for the first time because you don't even know where your money's going. But the main thing today, and, and we will talk about that next week, like tithing, Options for giving. Galen's going to hit a lot of the practical uh, next week. So I just wanted to hit the foundation today. Where is your heart? Where are your priorities? And how does your budget reflect those things as a follower of Jesus? So think about that. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and just reflect on that today. Take some time and space. Say, where is your heart? Where's your priorities? Where's your dreams, your joys, and your fears? with money. Luke 16, 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God already knows what's in our hearts and he just wants to use his word to draw us closer to him and if you are new to the faith or you've never trusted in Jesus maybe you would not identify as a Christian I just want to say to you that we're about to take communion and I'm going to share the story of the gospel with you which is far more important even than what you're doing with your money it's about seeing what Jesus has done for you. So think about these things. Where's your heart with your money? And then if you're new here, just reflect on that. What do you think about this Jesus? Just take a couple minutes. Hit the lights and then we'll... Uh,
take communion together. We also have our also have our elder team in the back if you want to pray with someone. They would love to pray with you. sitting there, I would encourage you to think about one person. One friend or connection or relationship that you could pray and dream about investing in with your time and money. Just get one person on your mind that the Lord might have you invest in for eternity. sharing the good news of Jesus with someone who just has no idea what they believe. They don't know him. Maybe don't want him. Or maybe it's a young follower of Jesus who needs you to help walk with them. You want one person to invest in with your time and money. from each other about that investment in months, months from now, maybe years from now. Let's talk about that person together in small groups this week or over the prayer line. Let's literally talk about that person and share with one another who that might be. So we're going to take communion now and um, if you don't have one of these and you're a follower of Jesus 
he invites you to share in this reminder, this symbolic meal. We call it a meal. It's just bread and juice, but he called it that. It's the Passover meal. that he transformed and made about the new covenant. And uh, like I said, if you don't know Jesus, then I just want to tell you a brief bit about Jesus. Jesus was not just a good man, not just a moral or a righteous man. It's what Thomas Jefferson thought. Those were the parts of the Bible he cut out to keep were the good deeds that Jesus did. But there are other parts in the Bible that actually talk about Jesus being the Son of God, divine. And he was born of a virgin. And he came in the flesh and he lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross in your place and in mine as our substitute, as our sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And then, I can't believe that Jefferson cut this one out, but Jesus rose from the dead. And then he gave us this bread and juice and he said, this represents my body and my blood. And if you're my disciple, then you believe in me. And there's almost no better way to show what belief is than by eating and drinking. It's like you're drinking me and eating me. That's how close I hold you in this covenant relationship. So if you are not trusting in Jesus or following him, then we want to know, we want to pray with you, talk with you, and lead you to this place. Lead you to baptism, into his community, and then fellowship with his community. You have been listening to New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. If you have been blessed by this message, please let us know. Now go and live a new life.